Good morning, Church. Today's reading is Titus chapter 2, verse 1 to 15. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith and love and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers of addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled, and everything set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach, encourage, and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the biggest problems Christians face today is the invisibility of God. I mean, how can we believe in a God we can't even see? This has been a problem for Christians throughout history, and it continues to be a stumbling block for many. It was already a problem in Old Testament days, when the unbelievers would ridicule those who had a faith, saying, Where is your God? And we see this anguish in the words of uh, the psalmist in chapter 79, verse 10. It says, Why should the heathen say, Where is now your God? Even today, we're told by society not to believe in the things that we cannot see. And yet, at the same time, in John's Gospel, in the Bible, it says, No one has ever seen God. But according to the Bible, there are two occasions when God becomes visible in Jesus' incarnation when he came to earth and in his second coming. And we see these two appearances uh, in our reading this morning. Firstly, in Titus 2 verse 11, it says, The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. The moment when Jesus came to the earth was the moment grace came into the world in a visible form. Through Jesus, we have all had the opportunity to see God and receive salvation. 
And secondly, in verse 13, we read about how Christians are waiting for a blessed hope. But what is this blessed hope that Christians expect in the future? It is that Jesus will appear in glory. The glorious appearance of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to reappear at the end of time. That's what Christians believe. The invisible God that I mentioned at the beginning is going to come again in the person of Jesus Christ. He appeared in grace to offer salvation and he will reappear in glory. And it is this future appearance of the glory of God, which is the blessed Christian hope that we see in verse 13. It is the appearance of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. I love driving. Uh, I was lucky enough to be able to drive from the age of 17. I passed my test um, pretty quickly on the first time, only had two minors. And driving is one of those unique activities uh, that allows you to look forward and back at the same time. My driving instructor always said, you've got to always be looking in your mirrors. Every few seconds, look in your mirror, look in your mirror. And during the test that I had, I had to make it really obvious to look up at my mirror to show the instructor that I was looking back as well as forward. I had to make it obvious. You look through the windscreen as you travel forwards in a car and you can look back through your mirrors. For those of us who drive, we find ourselves in that unique scenario in which, whilst looking forward, we're simultaneously looking back at what is behind us, always checking. And what we see behind us and what we see in front of us informs us how to go forward, how we drive, how we act. We hope to do this two-way looking spiritually as well. What I mean is in the sense that we're looking back at the first coming of Christ and we're looking on to the second coming of Christ. We are facing both ways at the same time and that is what God wants us to do. Like the driver in the car, we look forward to Christ's return and back to what he has done for us and what we see spiritually affects how we behave and act now. I want to summarize this then. In these few verses, Paul has united two time periods in the Christian era. That is to say, the first coming of Jesus, which began the Christian era, and the second coming of Jesus, which will end it. The first is about grace, undeserved love, and salvation. And the second is about glory. Paul wants us to keep these ideas in our minds and understand how they link to the two main physical appearances of Jesus. We look back at the first and we look on to the second. It is by understanding this that will inform our understanding of this thing called self-control, this Christian behavior. The same one who offered us salvation by grace in the past teaches us to say no 
to ungodliness in the present and will return to bring us to glory in the future. So, in a very real sense, to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age is how Christians make Jesus visible between his first coming and his second coming. It is his grace that teaches us how to do it. The driver in the car shows, through the way he or she drives, what he has seen or she has seen on the road. The Christian shows others what he or she has seen spiritually and how the Holy Spirit has changed them through how he or she behaves. These revelations and outpourings demand and show us how to live a life of self-control and righteousness today, in the present. We ought to live remembering that he came in grace and he's coming in glory. And knowing this truth will spur us on to godliness and lives that reflect self-control and self-discipline. Focusing on the past and the future appearances of Christ help us to understand why self-control and why godly behavior is so important. But what does self-control look like? Paul gives us, thankfully, some examples through Titus 2. Older men should live a virtuous life, dignified and mature, and older women are to demonstrate reverent behavior and to guide the younger women in the church. Younger women are to be good wives and good mothers, and younger men are to learn self-control. Self-control for themselves. So what is self-control? And what are the grounds of Christian self-control? Those are the two questions that still lie before us. When it comes to looking at how Christians implement self-control, we have, we have to have the guts to get down to those gruesome details, the nitty-gritty. In this passage, according to people's ages, their sex, occupation, Paul offers several examples. He begins with the older men, as I mentioned earlier, and the younger women, and the younger women, and the younger men. And then he deals with slaves and servants in the community, and he gives exact direction to each of the six groups on how to exercise self-control. So we're going to look at some of them briefly. The way of life which is appropriate to sound doctrine for older men is that they should be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Paul says to Titus to teach the older men two things that change them and to help instill in them godliness and righteousness. Firstly, dignity. Dignity on the one hand and maturity on the other. We're told the older men are to exhibit an element of dignity that complements their seniority and as expressive of their inner self-control. They're to be sound, that is, mature or healthy in faith and love. That is to say, older men should have healthy faith lives. And according to the older Christian men, 
I have spoken to about this issue. Lack of restraint, overindulgence seem to be the two big pitfalls. And I, seem, and I see a lot of these things creeping up in my own life. Whether it's saying no to overindulgence with food, alcohol, sex, gambling, chasing money, or just plain old grumbling. These are all areas the Holy Spirit can positively affect. After the older men, he moves on to the older women. First, they're to be reverent in the way that they live, and they're to practice being in the presence of God, and being in the presence of God in every aspect of their lives as mature Christian women who show self-control. Being in the presence of God affects behavior. According to this passage, they ought to have an element of decorum and reverence in God's presence. This breeds this idea, again, of self-control and means they are not slanderers. Now, as you can probably tell, I'm not particularly old, and hopefully you can also tell that I'm not a woman. And so in preparing to talk about this, I didn't really feel like I had a great deal of authority in this area. And so doing as every good boy does when he's in a pickle, I called my mum. And I asked my mum and asked her whether she had any pearls of wisdom or nuggets of wisdom which I could share with you on this area. She told me a story relating to herself. So when my sister and I, we were very small, my mom would take us to a friend's house, uh, who we're going to call Amanda. Amanda also had small children, and my mom wanted to start talking to Amanda about some of the other mums and begin gossiping, and perhaps sharing things that she'd heard. Uh, when she was doing this, my mum was struck immediately by how Amanda stopped her being able to do this. She refused to feed my mum's desire to talk about others. Amanda would lay aside the questions or comments involving others that were negative or slanderous. Amanda essentially didn't give my mum's gossip room to grow. Amanda didn't feel the need to talk about these things and would deflect the comments and talk about something else. I think that was a clear example of self-control from my mum's friend. And it showed my mum a means of overcoming her desire to gossip and implement self-control. I asked my mum what she now does instead and she says that when she has the strength, she prays and talks to God about these things. Positively, older women are told in this passage to be teachers of younger women. They're to train the younger women on how to live godly, upright lives. I think there's a massive need in the church today for a ministry of older, godly women and men to share their Christian wisdom and experience with younger women and younger men, respectively. Through this passage, older women are encouraged to reach out to the younger women in the church, and indeed, for the younger women to seek out godly, Christian, mature women 
to grow spiritually. These combinations can greatly help in fostering an environment of discipleship, self-discipline and self-control. We see that older women should teach and guide the younger women to love their husbands and love their children. Love is the first and foremost basis of Christian self-control and Christian growth. The love, sacrifice and service as is demonstrated in the life of Jesus. We learn from the passage that the younger women are to be self-controlled. It is not possible to create from this verse a stay-at-home stereotype for wives, as some may try and do. We cannot use this to say that wives cannot become high-flying women. That's not what this is saying. No, what, it, what, what is stated is that women, if a woman wants to have that calling to become a wife, if they want to have that calling to be at home and have a husband and stay at home with the children, if they want that calling, then they must not neglect it. They must not neglect it in any way, but rather they must love and serve those to whom they're committed. Younger women are told in this passage to be kind to strangers and to be subject to their husbands. This is not to be misunderstood in terms of authority and certainly not autocracy, but rather in terms of the headship of responsibility and loving, sacrificial care that a, that a wife has for her family. The reason why women are to be encouraged in this area is so that nobody will malign the gospel. Indeed, Paul is keen that Christian marriages and Christian homes promote the gospel and promote the gospel's Christian message and reflect the greatness of the gospel. Paul is deeply, deeply, deeply concerned with the witness of the church. And so those that lack self-control and those marriages and homes that fall short of the Christian ideal are in danger of bringing the gospel into disrepute. In a similar way, Paul encourages the younger men to demonstrate self-control. Young men are commanded to develop just one fruit of the Spirit, which I think John Stott helpfully calls self-mastery. The great news I think us younger men can get from this is that self-control is possible. Even in the wildest, most testosterone-fueled, impassioned young men, self-control is possible. If it wasn't possible, Paul wouldn't say that the young men should practice it. Paul believed it was possible, and he also believed in telling young men to exercise it and to be encouraged to take it seriously. In order for young men to succeed in this area, they need a consistent example, which Titus, in this passage, is to provide. Well, two years ago, I started playing the trumpet again after 12 years of not playing at all. When I started, I was pretty disheartened, to be honest with you, I could barely play a note. But over time, and with a little consistent practice, I managed to get to a reasonable standard. And for the last two years, I'd like to think that uh, I've reached a, a decent level.
even playing in a few gigs here in Hong Kong. I was self-taught during that time, and I'd like to think I made pretty good progress. I'd look back at the jazz heroes like Louis Armstrong and Chet Baker, and I'd try my best to imitate their playing. I'd even slow down the, the tracks to try and imitate what they were doing. However, my playing was not getting to the level that I really wanted. And I could see my ability was limited by me being totally reliant on myself. My practice times were becoming patchy and sporadic. Six weeks ago though, I started to take a few lessons from a professional trumpeter who's been playing for over 50 years. And by his example, his guidance and the accountability has brought my playing as well as my focus and discipline with practice to a, a completely different level. So a living mentor, a guide, a solid example helped me hugely. And in a similar way, when it comes to self-control, our young men and our young women, including myself, need, desperately need, really desperately need older men and older women to guide us and to provide the example for how to demonstrate and how to exercise that self-control. It's a real tough area for all of us. It also, by having those great role models, provides fantastic accountability, great accountability for our younger generations. The Old Testament heroes of faith like the jazz heroes for my trumpet playing, are great examples. They're great models for Christian conduct. And yet, God doesn't only want us to have deceased role models from the Bible. He also wants us to have living role models, and especially the pastors of the church, but also those who are older and have lived a little and know what it's like to struggle with these things. As was alluded to before, Paul is deeply, deeply, deeply concerned for the positive witness of the church, and he wants the church's actions to commend the gospel. And let's be honest, our behavior, my behavior, your behavior, our behavior is going to do one or the other. We can either malign the gospel via our behavior or we can honor the gospel. The grace that appears in Jesus Christ teaches through the Holy Spirit. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly pursuits. And instead it teaches us to live a life that is self-controlled, upright and godly in today's world. Grace teaches us and disciplines us. The miraculous appearance of God in the first coming of Jesus teaches us to renounce the old life and to begin to live a new life and to turn away from godlessness to godliness and to turn from selfishness to self-control, to reject the devious ways and dishonesty and instead embrace righteousness, embrace righteous conduct by showing love to one another. A godly, 
righteous and disciplined life does the things that Paul says here. And grace teaches us to live a life like that. And that's the kind of life that we should strive for. I'm excited about the church ministry in Hong Kong and particularly in, in Resurrection Church. I already really uh, greatly benefit from being part of the men's group, which has the diversity in age and in background. I'm excited about learning from these godly older men and growing alongside them. And that's already happening. I'm excited for the cross-generational Bible studies where we get to grow in our understanding of God's Word. I'm excited about being part of Christian worship and music groups that are upward and outward looking. I'm excited about seeing my wife grow spiritually and us growing in faith together. I'm excited about serving this community and seeing people come to know who Jesus is through how we behave and what we say. I pray that what we do as a church matches what we say and that we will be beacons of light in this community together. Amen.